We are in a long series in the book of Genesis. And if you've ever wondered why we've spent so much time in Genesis, we started in January, by the way. Or perhaps you've even wondered if we are out of touch for spending so much time in the Old Testament. Allow me to remind you of the first passage that we considered in this series, John 5. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus calls out the Pharisees for trying to find life in the Old Testament. But as Jesus points out, that's not what you're supposed to find there. Listen to what Jesus says, the rest of verse 39. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, Jesus says the Old Testament bears witness to him. It points to him. If you want to find life, come to me. If you want to find me, the Old Testament points to me. That's the words of Jesus. So as we look through the creation accounts, we look through them to Jesus. As we look through the flood narratives, we looked forward through Jesus. As we looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph, we're to look forward to see Jesus, to see men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all men who fall short of the glory of God, all men who are patriarchs, are well-regarded, and yet when you read their stories, you see men full of flaws who fall short. Why? Because we're not supposed to be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're supposed to see through them to Jesus, the fulfillment, the Messiah. Friends, the Old Testament is so crucial for us to know and to understand Jesus that when Stephen spoke in Acts 7, he used the entire Old Testament as his means to share the gospel. His knowledge of the story of Israel and God's redemptive purposes, he used all of that to point to Jesus. And then finally, Paul, when meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus at the end of the book of Acts in Acts 20, testifies of his ministry in Ephesus, saying this, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. When Paul claims the comprehensive nature of his ministry, he wanted them to know he taught them the whole counsel, the entirety of God's revelation to man. He wanted them to see that the Old Testament would point to Jesus. So we want to be a church that teaches books of the Bible. We want you to know and understand your Bibles. We want to call you into the text. And so we're going to choose to teach books that are long and thick and rich and unusual sometimes. Because we want you to see how the whole book, all 66 books, point us to Jesus. So you see the consistent theme throughout all of it. All pointing us back. All pointing us to Jesus. So that in mind, this morning as we continue in our series in Genesis, we're picking up in chapter 39. Building on the life of Joseph, which we started last week. And to get there, we need to build the context of his story. So let me remind you of some things. First, Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob, the firstborn of Jacob and Rachel. I say that because if you know the whole story, and as the text makes clear, Joseph came from a highly dysfunctional family, a family where the father, Jacob, had two wives and two concubines, and a family that Joseph comes out of but it's not just Joseph, right? The entire nation of Israel is born out of this family. 
We're to see that Judah, and by the way, I'm not preaching chapter 38. And you can read that study in your own time. But chapter 38 just points out the fact that Judah, through whom Jesus comes from, boy, did that brother fall short. And so as you follow this horse through, you see Joseph redeem Judah. And I said this last week, if you're going to read this narrative, you want to find yourself in the story, read yourself as Judah. That's who you are. You're not Joseph. You're the one who gets redeemed. But it all lays out for us this family and Joseph's role within it. We leaned into that last week and we saw that Jacob favored his son Joseph. And in fact, he favored him so much that his other brothers hated him. And they threw him in a pit, ultimately selling him off as a slave to a traveling caravan, hoping that they might profit from his demise. So it was my hope last week as we leaned into the text that you would start to see the reality that plays out in Joseph's story. That Joseph is both fully loved by God, fully chosen by God, fully blessed by God. God is in his life. And yet he's utterly physically rejected. And his situation and his circumstances just seem to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it starts to become helpful for us because we need to start tearing ourselves away from the idea that God's presence in our life equals physical blessing. Friends, there are plenty of places that teach that, and it's not a biblical teaching. We need to see that even in the midst of despair, even in the midst of situations and circumstances that are falling apart, that are shredding, God could still be fully in that. He could still be making himself known. There could still be tremendous blessing. That's what you see in the whole life of Joseph. God in the middle of it. God with a plan for it. God with a purpose for all of it. And we'll see some of that same theme play out this morning in Genesis 39. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Moses is doing what he commonly does in the book of Genesis. He gives us some summary statements to give us an understanding of the story he's about to tell. This is one. He gives us the overview. Joseph's been sold into slavery, purchased by Potiphar. And in verse two, we need to see The Lord was with Joseph. And friends, that is a thick and a rich and a deep statement. A statement that should resonate with all of us because Jesus Christ himself said, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. So as we look at Joseph's life, we go, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. That's not the reality for everyone in the Old Testament But wait for it, it is the reality for everyone in the New Testament. That if you've believed in Jesus, he's promised you his presence. For if you ascend to the heavens, I will be there. If you ascend, descend to the depths of Sheol, if you go to hell, I will be with you. The Lord was with Joseph, even in the depths of Sheol, 
even when his life felt like it was falling apart, even when he's a pit, even when he's being sold as a slave, and even when he arrives in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. And in the midst of all of that, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. What Moses declares to us, what he tells us, is not only the Lord carry him through this, but the Lord carried him through this in such a way that it was obvious that it was the Lord carrying him. Now I want to pause and make this point because it's huge. Friends, the heart of this text is not be like Joseph. We could be tempted to say, be like Joseph. We could be tempted to say, Joseph handles all this really well. Joseph resists temptation. Joseph does good. Be good. That's not the gospel. That's not a biblical teaching either. This isn't a moral message that says, when everything starts falling apart, hold it together. Because to be frank with you, that's not Christian. In fact, it's far from anything Jesus would have taught you. I think what we're supposed to glean from this text is not that Joseph was great, but rather the Lord was enough. The Lord was sufficient. And in fact, the Lord was so sufficient for his suffering that the Lord glowed out of him. That the aroma of Christ was so apparent to those that Christ's sufficiency in his sufferings came through. Look at the text. It emphasizes that. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. So we have to be careful not to jump into moral messages and miss the point of the text. Because again, the point isn't that Joseph was good, but rather that the Lord was present and he was sufficient. Verse 5. From the time he made him overseer in his house and all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in house and field, so that all that he had was in Joseph's charge, and because of them he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. What you start to see is Potiphar is doing well. And in fact, he's being blessed. And he's being blessed because of the presence of Joseph in his life. Now, I want to tell you to be such a blessing to other people that they'll see the Lord in you, because I think there's an application there. But I'm not trying to, trying to tell you to be like Joseph, because that's not what the text says. The end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. If you've been reading through Genesis, this should start to cue you in on some things, right? This kind of idea shows up. We saw this when Sarah, Abraham and Sarah go into Egypt. They find his wife beautiful. They find her appearance nice. They, Abraham tries to sell his wife off. We find this with Isaac and Rachel. We, you see this, except this time it's God's people. You see the other side of it. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's setting you up. And after his time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. So is Joseph, 
as Joseph has gone down into the pit, as he's gone down into slavery and down into Egypt, you want to see him start to catch a break. You want to see his story ease up, but that's not what we see. What we see is temptation. And that, friends, we need to be reminded of. For we need to be reminded of the words that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And why that becomes rich to us in this moment of the text is because if you feel weak in life, if you feel like you're getting one challenge after another challenge after another challenge after another challenge, you will start to appreciate I'm in a weak state. And if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel or National Geographic, and you should from, some, from time to time, you would note that when a lion comes onto the scene, the first gazelle he goes after is the limping one. He doesn't chase the strong ones. He's smarter than that. So when you start to feel challenged in life and it feels like one thing after another, after another, after another, after another, what Peter would say to you is, be sober-minded. Be watchful. The lion is is roaming around. He's looking for someone to be to devour. We need to be reminded of this. We can't be reminded of it enough. If you're going through hardship and difficulty and trial, if you're feeling down and weak, be reminded Satan is prowling around. This is one of the many reasons why being in church matters. Because it brings you back into the herd. It brings you back into the love and care of his people. Where you can be encouraged, where you can be supported, where you can be prayed for, where you can be defended from the evil one. Because he's deceptive. Consider the words of Potiphar's wife. Listen to the slyness of the evil one. Lie with me. She doesn't say sleep with me. She doesn't say anything more sinister than that. She says, lie with me. It's like she's inviting him into something innocent. It's kind of like she says, hey, why don't we just innocently cuddle? It doesn't seem like that big a deal. And that's how sin always enters the picture. We need to be so attuned to the evil one that we start to see the cunning trap of Satan. It's his deceptive nature. Set an innocent trap and wait for someone dumb enough to walk into it. Just lie with me. Watch Joseph's response. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. Now then, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What you see is Joseph standing up under temptation. You see him resisting. You see him walking in the Lord and knowing that the Lord who is with him and the Lord is providing for him. And again, the text isn't pointing you to be like Joseph. It's to see that a God who is so sufficient... It's so enough 
that even in the mind of temptation, even in the view of that, you would see God as being the greater thing. That his faithfulness mattered more than temptation. But we need to be reminded, as with lions, Satan doesn't only have one move. So he moves to trap him in a different way, verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his... Oh, skip this whole section. There we go. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Joseph is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's resisting temptation. He's standing up in all of it. And Satan has a different move. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Verse 16. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story. The Hebrew servant who you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. You have a man who's innocent, falsely accused. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, if you follow in the life of Joseph, could it get any worse? He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. He endures continuous temptation, manages to overcome all of that, falsely accused and thrown into a jail, and not just any jail, but the king's prisoners, which is, I'm sure is not a good jail to be in. But friends, what matters most in this story is not his life circumstances. It's not his situation. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we need to stop equating our life circumstances and our situations with the idea of his presence or his blessing. We need to consider everything going on in Joseph's life and read verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with him. Friends, if you're going through hardship and difficulty, underline verse 21. And if it so encourages you, write it out with your name in it. But the Lord was with Ben and showed him his steadfast love. We need to be reminded of the truth of who God is and his presence with us always. But more than that, we need to see his steadfast love love which by the way is one of the most beautiful words in the entire hebrew language i don't go original languages often with you but here it is it's the word has said h-e-s-e-d often translated as steadfast love but really gets to something much deeper and richer it paints a picture 
And it gives you the idea of a covenantal love, of covenantal loyalty. It's this picture of the incredible love that a perfect promise-keeping God has for people who will never hold up their end of the bargain. It's as if the word means, I love you. And I love you enough to be faithful to you, knowing full well that you'll never be faithful to me. I love you in such a way that I would give you absolutely everything I have, knowing you will short me every chance you get. It is an absolutely beautiful word, and it's a word that declares the gospel. It's a word that points us to Jesus. To start to see and understand this picture of the Lord that despite situations and circumstances, despite our failures and our failings, that the Lord is with us and he loves us. Let's finish the story, 22. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You see the sufficiency of God over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter where you stick Joseph. God seems to be enough. Friends, the point of Joseph's story is not be like Joseph. You know, the irony of that story and the reason I keep coming back to that is if you've been tracking with us through the book of Genesis, you should start picking up on the fact that Joseph is by far the most morally pure and the most righteous character we've seen so far. And we need to be honest about that point. But we also need to be honest about the fact that being morally pure and doing the right things is not the call of Scripture. That there's nothing saving about that. That's why the idea of be like Abraham, be like Isaac, be like Joseph is an insufficient message because what marks the life of joseph is what marked the life of adam and abel and enoch and noah and abraham and isaac and jacob what marks their life is that they believed in god that they trusted in his promises that he seemed to be enough even when they fell flat on their face in sin and even when they went through extraordinarily difficult situations So what do we do with Genesis 39? How do we take this idea of God's presence in our life, his love for us in our lives, and walk through hardship? I think Paul's going to give us some sound application for this in 2 Corinthians 4. So if you don't mind turning there, I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure... In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. First, we need to appreciate what the Bible teaches. And listen to this. It's a little technical at the beginning. In the scriptures, the indicative always precedes the imperative. The indicative declares who you are. And who you are always comes before the imperative, what you should do. If you put the imperative first, it becomes a moral teaching. Don't steal. Who you are 
always comes first in the scriptures. That is who you are in Jesus comes before what he calls you to do. That is, you're not called to moral rule following, but rather to live out the transformational salvation that you've been given in Jesus. So that when you walk through a hardship or trial or difficulty, we need to be built up on this truth. We have treasures in jars of clay. Listen to what Paul writes. We have a great treasure. And he's pointing to our salvation. To the reality that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that if you've believed in Jesus, you've been given a new hope, according to 1 Peter 1. You've been given the promised Holy Spirit to be with you always, to be the guarantee of the, the deposit for the inheritance later, according to Ephesians 1. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness, according to 2 Peter 1. Every spiritual blessings in Ephesians 1. That we're supposed to see that having believed in Jesus, we've already received the most enormous and valuable treasure that you will ever, ever conceive of. And by the way, none of that speaks to your situations or your circumstances. In fact, the whole passage will point you to the fact that you have something so valuable inside you that it should far surpass or exceed anything you could fathom outside of your body. Any physical blessing. You have a treasure in jars of clay. That there's this reality that we have this incredibly valuable thing inside us that's in a jar of clay. It pushes us to the idea that inside, because of Christ, we are solid and secure, and yet on the outside, we are weak, feeble, and fragile. We will chip. We'll fracture. We'll feel pain. On the outside, things will fall apart. Consider Paul's application to this, things I think Joseph could attest to. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Every part of that points to your outward fading away. Everything points to your outward being disappointing, to be warring against you, to be displeasing to your flesh. Your flesh is falling apart. And yet inside, there's something holding you together. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What Paul points to, friends, is if you have believed in Jesus. Now hear me, I keep saying that because if you've believed in Jesus, these promises are yours in Christ. They're true for you. But if you come and you're a part of us, and you've never placed saving faith in Jesus, if you've never entrusted your soul to him, 
They're far from you. I don't just get to assume because you come to church that you're a Christian, that you've loved Jesus, that you've trusted him. So the last thing I would want is someone to come here every week and believe, well, I come to church, these promises are mine. No, these promises are mine if you've believed in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, if you've placed your faith in him. Because what the text would show you is that if you've believed in Jesus, you've been united to Jesus. Such that everywhere you go, verse 10, always carrying, everywhere you go and in every situation, you carry around Jesus. According to Romans 6, you've been united in his death. The very picture of Romans 6, which gets played out in baptism, is that you've been united in his death, meaning that the full penalty for your sins, the fact that you are a sinner, the fact that you fall short of the glory of God, the fact that your sin separates you from God, is all taken care of by the blood of Jesus at the cross of Christ. Meaning your penalty has been fully paid. And you've been united with him in life such that you manifest Jesus everywhere you go. What the Bible starts to paint for us is this picture that Jesus is so transformative in our lives that you see what happens to Joseph happen to us. You walk in a room and people are like, wow, I'm just blessed. It's like Jesus is here. This text points to outwardly everything falling apart, yet inwardly being held together. This doesn't point to your best life now, pun intended. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul concludes, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more to people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul wants to write to you in the midst of suffering, what Joseph would speak to you in the midst of suffering, Joseph walked through it not because he was amazing, Not even because he was faithful, but because the Lord was with them. The Lord was sufficient. What Paul would say to you is that Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. And that whatever you're going through, whether it feels like being thrown into a pit or drug out of a pit and sold into slavery or sold into slavery and then falsely accused and thrown into jail again, whatever that looks like, we're to see this picture that Jesus is enough that he's sufficient for all of it by his death and by his resurrection. 
such that we would see everything we endure as a momentary affliction. That our love for Jesus should be when we see him as he is. Should be such that everything on the outside passes away. So friends, I pray that you would fall more and more in love with Jesus and that you would see him more and more and more and more for who he really is. That you would know whatever you're walking through, that he's enough. And on that day, you should fail and wonder that you'd be edified by his body, that we could remind you, that we could encourage you, that we could be your herd that we could defend you, and that we could remind you of the sufficiency of Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us so well and so thoroughly that you died on our behalf. Thank you for going to the cross in our place, for paying our penalty. Thank you for rising again And thank you for uniting yourself with us in such a rich and thorough way that everywhere we go, we carry around Jesus. Father, I know there are people in our room suffering, struggling, and going through all kinds of difficult challenges. Father, what we saw in the life of Joseph is that you were enough. I pray, Father, that you would bolster our faith. Father, what we saw in the life of Joseph is that you were enough. What we saw in the life of Paul is that you were enough. That outwardly, we're going to get beat up a lot. Outwardly, our circumstances, our situations can get awfully brutal at times, but we're not to be defined by those, but by the reality of who you are, the truth of who you are. So, Father, I pray that you would build us up in our understanding of Christ, that you'd build us up in our salvation, and you'd allow us to link arms and carry one another. Because Christ is enough. In your name we pray. Amen.